Well, good morning, and happy Mothering Sunday. Today, I want to celebrate perhaps the greatest skill and strength of every mother. It is their unstoppable, unquenchable faith in their children. You will witness it screamed from the sidelines of the soccer pitch. They have sharper eyes than any referee, sharper tactics than any coach. You will hear it yelled from the side of a rugby pitch, calling foul and encouraging violence. You will see it in every school auditorium where children sing and play and dance. It can withstand the scratching of the vilest violin. It can withstand the screeching of Pavarotti as yet before talent. It knows no fear. It knows no shame. It knows no reason and no logic. It needs no encouragement. It is simply a mother's unstoppable faith. I was fortunate to have an older brother that was blessed with many talents. He was uh, intellectually very strong. He was wonderful upon the stage, had many leading parts. He was also a sportsman as well. So God, the God and master of our universe, possessing such a great sense of humor, sent unto my mother's womb myself. (laughs) Because if a mother requires great faith through childhood years, I was to test this to the very limit. You see... As other mothers stood and cheered at sports day, there is a cheer that any mother will have when their child comes into first place. A special cheer for second, a special cheer for third. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth have a cheer and a hug of encouragement. But as yet, there was no cheer devised for the mother who simply had to applaud her son running backwards, carrying a video camera. You see... When your son is slightly too technical, those school plays take on new meaning. You know, when I left home, I put into a little box 150 different, uh, you know, programs that had come with those school plays. 150 times my mother and my grandmother had sat upon those uncomfortable seats. And, you know, I was only on stage in one of those shows. As all around the mothers clapped their prodigies five minutes of fame inside the spotlight. For 15 years, my mother clapped the boy that was operating that spotlight. It takes a special faith. It takes a special love. In fact, I think on one occasion, it near drove my grandmother mad. It was Pygmalion. I was 14 years old. 400 people sat in that auditorium in in, uh, Warden Park School. And all we did is take the house lights down. It was total darkness. In fact, we held the darkness just a little longer than we normally would at the start of the show. And just as you could begin to make out shapes amidst the gloom, from the lighting desk at the back of the hall, all I did was to open a fader for half a second and close it again. Behind everybody in the audience were two three-kilowatt nocturnes, very bright floodlights. Above them were another two. In front of them, another two. There was a blinding flash. The boy sitting next to me on the sound desk, just as people's eyes were completely blinded and the flash faded away to nothing, played in a wall of sound, a mighty thunderous thunderclap. And as that echoed away around the school hall and people's eyes began to recover from the blinding, they heard the sound effects over the speakers of falling rain. And as their eyes started to work once again from the proscenium arch above the stage, they saw rain begin to fall Sheets of rain across the front of those curtains. It was still almost pitch darkness in the hall that night. 
The show was only 25 seconds old. No word had been spoken, no actor had appeared upon the stage. The curtains had not yet opened. And yet there, in the middle of the auditorium, my grandmother pulled herself up to her full height. She was only this tall. <laughs> and there, in the gloom, she began to applaud. <laughs> and such was my grandmother's passion that the entire hall began to clap with her. Because after 15 years of waiting, for just those few seconds, her beloved grandson had taken center stage. It is a love which has such passion, such faith, that it can lift us from where we can only crawl and teach us to walk. It is a faith that can take our mumblings and our gurglings and teach us to speak. It is a faith which can take us and teach us to read and teach us to think and teach us to create. And it has the love and the patience, this faith, that when we answer back, when we seem to know more, when we terrify them with everything we do through our teenage years, still they are faithful. It is a love which will wait for us every night when we are late home. It is a love which will sit with us when we are sick through those long, dark nights. And it is a love that in one final act, after too short a time, must let us go. For some people, I'm aware that that faith comes not from their mothers, but I hope and pray that you have found that faith from someone. In our two readings today, from John, we encounter the remarkable faith of Mary. I know this is not a Catholic church, but Mary is not just for Christmas. On Mother's Day, I want us to look at her faith in these two encounters in John. You know, in the Gospel of John, Mary appears just twice, at Cana and the cross. There is no birth narrative, there is no sign of her during any of the other miracles. Now... From the faith of my own mother and grandmother, I am absolutely sure that she was there on almost every occasion when Christ would allow it. I'm sure she was there supporting him and loving him throughout his ministry. But in the Gospel of John, just these two occasions are highlighted and recorded for us. Cana and the cross. So what is significant about just these two occasions? Because they seem so unrelated. One is the greatest celebration of its day, a wedding, a feast, a banquet, a celebration that would have lasted for days. The other, the agony of the cross. One seems so worldly and unnecessary, such a strange first miracle to turn water into wine. The other, the greatest miracle of all, that God would give his only son on the cross. And Mary, the mother of of Jesus was there. Actually, you know, John never uses the name Mary. If you look at the beginning uh, of John chapter 2, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. John never uses the word Mary because the name Mary was not what was remarkable about this woman. In fact, I learnt when studying for this that Mary was a name given to 50% of women in Jesus' time. That's why there's so many Marys in the Gospels. You could walk down the street and if you shouted Mary, 50% of the women would turn, down, turn around. It was not her name that made her special. My surname, McQuillan, actually is a mangling of an old Gaelic word, McHulian, which means son of Hugh. And for generations in my family, all the male McQuillans were called Hugh. All of them. In every generation. 
This could get quite confusing, uh, and there actually is a family song that I would like to share with you. It goes something like this. There's old Hugh and there's young Hugh. There's Hugh among the bairns. And if we get another Hugh, we'll bash out old Hugh's brains. You can see why I was the person working the spotlight. So it's not her name that makes her remarkable. 50% of the people in her town, 50% of the people in Cana and Galilee would have been called Mary. What made her remarkable, what made her unique, was the name that John gave to her the mother of Jesus. If you look through those first few verses of John chapter 2, you will notice that Mary is particularly highlighted at the beginning of this reading. It is no accident that she is there. John is highlighting her and giving her special mention. In fact, this, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, begins with Mary. Jesus' mother was there. I think John does this for... Several reasons. Number one, he wants to ground Christ's humanity at the very beginning of his ministry. We often look at Mary, and the arguments we have today between different theologies and different denominations is, who is Mary? By being the mother of Christ, what does that make her? Does it make her perpetually a virgin? Does it make her some sort of spirit? Does it make her different from us? The Gospels don't speak to that. They speak to this. Because she was his mother and she was there. We can be certain of just one thing. Jesus Christ was a man. You see, the arguments at this time were not who Mary was, but who Jesus was. She points to him. And here, at the very beginning of his ministry, John begins... Jesus' mother was there. To silence any argument of this man being a spirit or being anything else, his mother was there. It also identifies Mary's seniority and her authority in this story. If you look at the first four verses, Jesus' mother was there. She's mentioned before Jesus. And his disciples, they've been invited also to the wedding. But Mary, his mother, is mentioned first. When the wine is gone, who notices? Who is better connected? It is his mother. She turns to him. She is mentioned three times and speaks before Jesus does. In literature of its time, if something is very important, if you hear something repeated in a phrase, in a Bible, if they repeat the same thing two times, it means it's very important. If it's it's repeated three times, it means it is incredibly important. His mother was there. His mother, his mother. And so we come to the little problem with the wine. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. This was perhaps Mary's first and only mistake recorded in the Bible. Because, and if you learn just one thing from this morning, let it be this. Women, when you say something to a man... Even if you're just unloading it, even if you're just mentioning it casually, they will feel the urgent need, the almost unstoppable desire to somehow fix this problem for you. She may have just been mentioning this as gossip, but when you raise gossip before a man, they take it upon them as a burden. Ladies, be careful what you say to your husbands, for they feel they will have to fix everything for you. And men, if you're here this morning and you learn just one thing, sometimes all you have to do is listen. Sometimes let your wife bring something to you, something that may sound like it requires immediate fixing. All they want is for you to listen. 
They have no more wine. And then comes the strange, awkward passage that when I started reading through this passage, I was going to gloss over, because frankly, it makes no sense. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. You know, if you look up all the different versions of um, that passage, it can be read like this. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come, NSRV. Oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come, RSV. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come, NAB. He answered, That is no concern of mine. My hour has not yet come, REB. Jesus said, Woman, what do you want from me? My hour has not yet come, NJV. Dear woman, Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Jesus seems to be saying no. He seems to be saying not yet. He seems to be saying, why are you bugging me? Why are you bothering me? My time has not come. I am not prepared. I am not ready. He seems to say no, and yet in a verse's time, the miracle is performed. You know, the real miracle of Cana hasn't got anything to do with water and wine. The real miracle of Cana happens in the white space in your Bible between the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. You see, that little phrase, why do you involve me, doesn't actually translate quite the same if you do it literally into English. It says, what is to me and to you? And it's used in only two other places in the Gospels, both times by Mark. And both times it's used are when demon-possessed people come up to Christ and challenge his authority. Possessed by demons, they encounter the living Christ. And they are in conflict between who has authority. Will Jesus triumph over the demons or the demons triumph over him? Jesus doesn't say, no, I won't. Jesus doesn't say, not yet. He says at Cana, I can't. I can't do it. He says to his mother, in a sense, I'm out of my jurisdiction here. He says to her, who has authority here? Whose domain is this? Is Cana your world or is Cana my world? He says to her, I can't do it. I'm out of my jurisdiction. You see, Jesus stands in Cana, surrounded by all of the props for a miracle that we all know so well and expect to happen, and he can't do it because he's missing the most important thing for the miracle to occur. No one in that room has the faith for the miracle to happen except Mary. The real miracle of Cana happens in the white space between verse 4 and verse 5. When Jesus says, I can't, because there is no faith here, think about it. His ministry was only three days old. He had but two disciples who'd been following them for those few short days. He's a young man in a busy wedding. He's a nobody. He's a start-up rabbi. If he had asked them to take the water to the leader of the banquet, they would not have complied, for they had no faith. The wine had run out. The solution was in their midst, 
and none of them had the faith to see it except Mary. So Mary is the miracle of Cana. And what happens between verse 4 and verse 5 is that she places not just her faith in him but transfers her authority to him. She is introduced first in this passage. She is invited to the wedding first. She's clearly senior to him on this occasion because she knows the wine has run out. Somehow she is connected to the servants. And so she turns and she says to them, verse 5, do whatever he says. This is a miracle which occurs on borrowed faith from his mother who believed in him. And then see what happens immediately from verse 5. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so Jesus points to the stone water jars nearby. He gives some illogical sounding commands. And 950 bottles of the finest wine you or I would ever have tasted are produced. Do whatever he says. God is enabled to work in our realm. He is able to break through from his kingdom into ours only through and by our faith. The miracle of the Cana is not when, uh, uh, the, when the wine showed up, it was when the faith showed up. Let's face it, Jesus could turn water into wine seven days of the week and twice on Sundays. That wasn't the miracle. The miracle is when someone put their faith in him, to put their authority in him, to take that chance of possibly looking ridiculous in public and make a gamble of faith upon her son. Luther wrote in 1523 this on faith. Faith does not require information, knowledge, or certainty, but a free surrender and a joyful bet on his unfelt, untried, and unknown goodness. Mary was willing to have that kind of faith. She didn't require certainty or knowledge. She was willing to bet and surrender herself on the unfelt, untried, and as yet unknown goodness of her son. And what happened? Flip ahead to verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And because of Mary's faith, he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. You see, the wonderful thing is that faith is contagious. Mary's faith led to the faith of the disciples. Do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Mary could not have possibly imagined where that might lead her. If you turn to John 19, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, it was valuable, it was an expensive item. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. In contrast with those soldiers, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. While some distance away they were gambling over his clothing, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. This scene at the cross begins to strip away everything about who Jesus was on this earth. Some distance away, the soldiers have taken all of his possessions and they're gambling over them. They've already taken away his dignity. 
They've already flogged him and damaged his body. They've found him guilty of trumped-up charges and put a sign above his head and mocked him. And at the foot of the cross stands his mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And then comes a saying from the cross from Jesus where he speaks to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. You see, Jesus knows where he is going. And he knows that most terrible, terrible feeling that he knows he must go there alone. So the only honourable thing he can do, the only thing he has left to do, is he gives up his relationship with his mother and puts her in relationship with his most beloved disciple. It is the final act of our dying Lord. Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And Mary stands at the foot of the cross and must do whatever he says. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. There's something strange about the Gospel of John. When you read through this story of the cross, there are no adjectives. There is no elaboration. There is no mention made of the pain, the indignity, the horror of what occurs. When I watched that film a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, it's like two or three hours of just watching somebody constantly being flogged. It almost glorifies the violence. There is none of that here. There's not a single adjective. There's not a single description of what happened on the cross until here. Jesus says, I am thirsty. You see, something happens between verse 27 and 28 that you and I can't see. But it's recorded here in these words, I am thirsty. In verses 26 and 27, with his clothing gone, with his innocence gone, with his dignity gone, He separates himself also from his earthly relationship with his mother and with his disciples. And between verse 27 and 28, his father turns his face away. In verse 28, Jesus, for the very first time in his life, is utterly alone. And so he says, I am thirsty. It is the thirst he went to quench at Cana. Back in Cana, he took six stone water jars. Six is the Jewish number for incompleteness. He took that which was incomplete. He took that which was designed for ritual cleansing, that which had no purpose at all left at the wedding. He took the insight his mother had given him, that the wine was going to run out. Wine in those days and some of my days symbolized joy. You drank wine at the wedding that you may feel joy inside. That was what it symbolized. And so Jesus, in the miracle at Cana, takes the water that was designed to purify us from the outside. They had plenty of that. Six huge jars of it. Huge amounts of water for washing themselves. But the joy was running out. And nobody had noticed. We're suffering now from the credit crunch. Money is running out. Nobody noticed. It's amazing how when we rely on our human ambition, when we rely on our human magnificence, somehow we don't spot that one day, however good we are, the wine is going to run out. The miracle that happened at Cana was that Mary had the faith to notice that the wine was running out and to bring it to Christ. The miracle that Christ performed at Cana was to take the water 
the inadequate water that would wash you just superficially for a moment until the dust returned and transform it into wine. 950 bottles of wine. It is the melody of Cana that echoes on the cross when Christ says, I am thirsty. In an almost cruel mockery, a jar of wine vinegar is there. Contrast what we managed to produce for Christ upon the cross with what he produced for us at Cana. 950 bottles of the finest wine at Cana are ragged, soaked in vinegar upon the cross. There is nothing we have to offer him upon the cross. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant. You know, at Passover, that's the plant that they would use to put a sponge on the end of, to paint the blood around the doorway, the blood of the sacrifice. And on that stick, they lifted that bitter wine to Jesus' lips. So when he'd received that drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Those words take what seemed to be a tragedy, what seemed to be an abhorrence, what seems to be something vile and ugly, and they scream of his faith. For it is by Jesus' faith upon the cross to do whatever his father asked of him that we may enter the kingdom. At Cana, Mary proved that it is only by our faith that the kingdom may have domain and authority here, but only by the faith of Jesus can we have domain in the kingdom of God by his blood on the cross, by his sacrifice. And so between his thirst and his victory, his faith lets him die for you and for me. And I know he has faith in this because when he said it is finished, he did it in a very particular way. Did uh, anybody else get a statement from the tax man this week? I don't know if you did. Uh, what happens here is that at the end of January, you have to settle up accounts with the tax man. You send some money off. And this week, uh, both Zoe and I received statements from the tax man. And it has how much I owed and it has how much I paid. And the bottom, it has the balance. Now, actually, my one's not very good for this example because the tax man owes me 84 pence, which is, <laughs> frankly, rather uh, inconvenient for, this, for the purposes of this illustration. But Zoe's is much better than mine. Zoe's actually got hers right. And so hers says at the end, balance outstanding, naught point naught naught. Do you know they found papyri tax returns from the time of Christ? And on them, they see what everybody owed. And at the bottom of them is written the same word, that Jesus uttered on the cross. Because it kind of doesn't mean it is finished. What it means is paid in full. It was the same word you used if somebody uh, owed you money. And you might spend your entire life trying to work off that debt. You might have to sell them your children. You might have to do absolutely everything to give them your finest animals and keep working and pay them every, every penny that you have. And when the debt is paid, it is finished. Paid in full. When you went to the temple to buy that perfect lamb for sacrifice at Passover, it's expensive, so you haggled the price. And when the price, when the cost of the sacrifice was agreed between you and the merchant, the merchant would say this word, it is finished. Paid in full. The price has been agreed. By Mary's faith at Cana, 
you and I didn't get to miss a miracle that may well have never happened. I pray that we will have the faith in any Cana moment to really know if the wine is running out. I pray that we will have the faith to bring that to Christ. Because only by our faith can the kingdom break through in our lives. But this I know for sure. When the kingdom finally calls me home, when the bill is totaled up and presented, it will cover many pages and it will make truly awful reading. But on the final page will be the line, balance due, naught point, naught naught, paid in full. Written in the blood of Christ on the inventory of my life as I stand at the gates of the kingdom, I will remember Cana and the cross.